Good morning. How's everybody doing? Somebody gave me a... Well, first of all, it's good to see all of you. I, there's a lot of you out there this morning that I, I maybe don't know as well. My name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone and just want to say welcome. Thank you so much for being with us as a guest this morning. And I, just, I pray today that you wouldn't just encounter us. My heart and prayer would be that you encounter Jesus Christ today. That's our goal. And so if you've got your Bibles, if you've got your, <clears throat> your notepad, if you've got your whatever you do your Bible on, I don't even know what all different ways there might be. I'll throw them up on the screen. But if you got those, go ahead and open them up to 1 Thessalonians. That's where we've been. That's where we're gonna continue to go. And uh, I'm excited to unpack it. If you remember last week, Christian kind of launched us down into these, these last things or the return of Jesus. And he talked about grief, but he most importantly talked about the reality of hope. In fact, let me just say this. If you study the book of 1 Thessalonians, one of the things that you should see very presently is Paul's constant kind of reminder of hope. And not just any kind of hope, but we've been talking specifically about hope that is found, first of all, in the faithfulness of King Jesus, but second of all, faithful in those promises of the good that he promises, the good that he's after. Now, I got up here, you, I don't see my clicker. Could I get my clicker thingy bopper, jibby thingy bobber thing? They're frantically now trying to find it. So while they do that, we'll, do, we'll keep going on. But here's one of the things. In 1 Thessalonians last week, when Christian unpacked it, what he was doing is he was unpacking Paul's pastoral heart. That's really what he was doing. Paul, looking at this group of people who were grieving because of people that had died before the return of Jesus Christ. But the thing that he wanted them to know is that, thank you so much, we as Christians are different than the world. We have hope. And he said, in light of that, then what I want you to do is I want you to still grieve. Jesus grieved when it, the, we, Christian brought that to the surface when he was at the tomb in John 11 for his friend Lazarus. God grieves over the dead. But the contrast is for those of us that are in Christ Jesus, we get to grieve differently. And I'll even say this, every time that I do a funeral of somebody that is a follower of Jesus versus someone that's not a follower of Jesus, it is a completely different funeral. It is a funeral in which we have hope because that person we know at the end of the day is in a phenomenal position with where they are in Christ. Now what Christian kept doing last week is, is he'd hit these little points and he would say, I'm not gonna answer that Todd is. And then he'd hit another point and say, I'm not gonna answer that Todd is. And I started adding all of those up and I've got a lot of stinking questions to answer this morning. I don't know if I'm gonna be able to answer all of them. In fact, I don't think I can answer all of them because anytime we look at last things, it becomes difficult. But one of the things you can do, if you've got questions about what happens to us after we die, you can go to our, our website and go to the long doctrinal statement. We have an explanation of actually what happens to us after we die, but also what happens in the return of Jesus in a fuller way. So we'll be able to invite you to do that. But here's how we're going to come at it. Is that anytime you study your Bible, one of the most important things that we do within studying the Bible is to ask six key questions, which is just who, what, when, where, why, and how. And so that's what we're going to do today. We're, you're going to come along with me and we're going to study this passage. We're going to ask these key kind of important questions about who, what, when, where, why, and how. Now, again, like I said before, to catch us up, the whole point of this text is that Paul's talking to a group of people. He says, I don't want you to be informed. There was an information gap that was going on and he wanted to address this uninformed reality about this issue of death. 
Now, the way that he framed it, as you can see up there, is with the word of sleep. And you'll see this like in verses 14 and 15, he uses again this idea of a sleep to represent death. But by the time he gets to verse 16, man, all the cultural niceties are gone. And he just comes and he says it flat out. These people are, they're dead. Now with it, one of the things though that he wanted them to know is that the loss of loved ones truly does hurt. And in fact, this group of people, when you look back at chapter four, nine through 11, Paul saw and he stated within there, this group of people truly did love one another, but Paul did not want them to grieve without hope. He was saying, look, it's right for you to grieve. It's right for you to, to, to have this time in which we feel the sense of loss, but you do it with this position of hope. That's how I want you to come at it. And every question that we're gonna ask about the text today has to have an answer of hope after it. In other words, when we ask who, there should be an answer of hope. When we ask what, there should be an answer of hope because that's what all this is about. Let me just say this, in a world today in which we live in that seems to lack so much hope, we need to begin to give the answers to these questions like Paul or Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, answers to the hope that's found not only within us, but within the text of scripture. But if you look down there, the who of this text really aren't difficult to determine. But I would say this, oftentimes what happens is, is we overlook the main ones. Now, when you look down in this, the main players in this text, you see God the Father that's in there. You see the Lord Jesus Christ that's in there. And no doubt, as we saw kind of earlier in 1 Thessalonians, the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in kind of what's going on, even though he isn't at the forefront of what Paul's talking about. But what I mean by the Father and the Son being the main players, and I think this really builds in towards this idea of hope, is that our triune God is the one that's actively engaged in causing every action that happens here. It's amazing. So much of it is not dependent upon us, but instead you see this and the way Paul's writing this is that God is in absolute control of all history, even, even bringing history as we understand it to an end. Everything is submitting to his will. Now, let me just stop for a second and say hope. The reason that we as followers of Jesus have hope is that the world isn't spinning out of control in some way as if somehow all the events around the world are causing God to fret. Humanity does what they do within this world, but let me just say this. Our God, as evidenced inside of this particular text, he is in absolute control. Everything is bending to his will. And what Paul's talking about in here is real historical events of what had happened, what will happen, what is happening. But the key is that the Lord is, he's Lord of over all of history. It gives us hope. But to be more clear, let me show you what I mean. If you got your Bibles, look down in verse 14. You see this here. Oops, let me go back. Verse 14. It was Jesus who died and rose again. Also in verse 14, it's God, the Father, who will bring him with those who have fallen asleep in Jesus Christ. Verse 15, those who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep because God's in control of all events. When we come to verse 16, two things happen. The Lord will himself descend from heaven. The dead in Christ will rise. Both of those are actions of God. 
Then in verse 17, those who are alive or are left will be caught up, which is another act of God. And finally, again, in verse 17, our always existence in Christ will not be of us, but instead the culmination of God's redemptive work. God is first and primary who's in this text. And you shouldn't miss this because it is the premise when we ask the question of who, he is the hope. I would even say this, outside of the followers of Jesus being asked, and you kind of see this in verse 13, to to believe in the work of Christ, uh, verse 14, to grieve without hope, verse 13, to encourage one another, verse 18, every other act that's in here is God. That is why we have hope. Our God is in absolute control. Now, the other three groups of people are in here are all people. The first group, verse 14, is that group we've talked about that are the sleeping or the dead. You see the next group down in there, they're the group that are, they're the ones that are to have hope, the ones that are alive, those of us that are remaining until Jesus comes back. And those who grieve but don't have hope are this other group of people. But listen to me, no aspect of history is controlled by you or me or anything. His whole point in laying this whole out is we are called to be faithful, but it is God who is faithful over all things. That's the who of the text. We got to get that. We have to embrace that if we're going to find the hope that we need to live in the world in which we live in. Now, The next question that I want to try to answer is, if that's the who, the one who supersedes all things, the next question is when, but let me, let me kind of start out this way before I walk through the rest of the details of 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, 18, and I need everybody to listen to me closely. You might have a different view than me as far as when all of this is going to take place. You might have a different view to me as far as how all of this might take place. Or you might have a different view regarding the timing. Or maybe you have a different view regarding various events that are about ready to happen at the return of Jesus. When he comes to establish his reign forever. Let me just say this. When it comes to timing or different events that are in there, it's okay that we have differing views. There's gonna be some things in here which we're gonna talk about that we can't differ on. There are primary matters that when we look down at the Bible and try to understand last things, there are absolutes. There are things that are absolutely clear But we also know that there are things that are unclear, that are difficult to understand as we kind of wrestle through scripture. And again, if you want to know where we stand on different things, you can go to our doctrinal statement to understand it. But when it comes to a lot of the timing questions and a lot of the events, just listen to me. We need to hold those positions because we do need to study God's word. It's important that we engage ourselves in understanding the truths of God's word. But on those things, we have to make sure also that we don't divide. There are so many things about the last things that we have to be careful about because they're so difficult that we cannot divide over. And I would even say this, be careful of any teachers out there that try to convince you that they're the ones that have the answers to how things are gonna come out in the end because the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, every single group of people thought they knew what was gonna happen in the return of Jesus and they missed the return of Jesus. I always remind my classes when I taught in 1 Corinthians 15 over at Eternity College that we have to remind ourselves that the really smart people in many ways 
missed it the first time. And so for us, one of the things we have to keep in mind is, is that this is a serious issue and we need to pour our lives into it. But I would even say all of our other brothers and sisters in Christ that have differing views are actually good for us. They force us to think differently through maybe some of the timing issues or, or the different events. I'm so thankful that on one end, you've got a, a used to have anymore, an R.C. Sproul who, who sat over on one side and you've got a Sam Storms who sits on the other side and you've got a John Piper that sits over here. Let me tell you what, all four of those men absolutely love Jesus and we need to listen to each other because we need to make sure at the end of this that we hold to those things that are primary, but hold rightly to the things that maybe are a little bit more unclear within the scriptures. Now, okay, everybody with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking around, nobody caring about your neighbor. If what I've said right now appeals to you, no. Now having said all that, we have to listen, we need to wrestle with this idea of last things because last things fuels our hope. In fact, our apprehension away from last things is a terrible thing. So let's get back to the question of when. And, and it isn't hard to see that most of the emphasis, when you look down in like verses 13 and 14, most of the emphasis within this is either present or past. In verse 13, look down there, there's a present reality that we've been discussing that they've been facing, which was a quandary as to what happens to those who've already died when Christ returns. Now the answer to that is verse 14, and Paul doesn't take them to the future. Instead, what Paul does is he takes them to the past, into the work of King Jesus when he, he delivered the kill shot to sin and to Satan. And then when he raised from the grave, he then also delivered another kill shot to death and he was raised to this resurrection life. Now these two fence, Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, which happened within days of one another, are crucial to answering the question as to what happens to those who have died in Christ when he returns. For Paul, because Christ rose again, those that are in Christ will be raised from the dead. Listen to me. If you are a person who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not only be raised from the dead, but you will be raised to, to, from the dead in resurrected life. It is this way now, again, where we're reminded God is in control of all things and the resurrection of Jesus Christ changed everything. And Paul was using it just to add fuel to the fire of their hope that they had within them. But look down at your Bible, starting in the middle of verse 14, however, suddenly when everything rushes to the future, for example, because of the impending sin of, and Satan and death, the, the grand victory of Jesus then over death and over, over, over sin and Satan and all those different things that had the audacity that stand, would stand against him, the dead in Christ will rise and those who are alive and are left will be caught up together with him. In other words, what's initiated when Christ now, he raises and he comes back from the dead is now this certain reality that it is going to happen. Now here's the big question. When? When is he gonna return? Well, if you know anything about church history, every generation thought it was gonna be during when? Their time. Paul thought it was gonna be during his time. And he actually, you can see this within the text. He honestly, I think, really did believe because of the imminency of the return of Jesus Christ that he could come during his lifetime. 
And even right now, whenever the world gets a little uneasy, World War II, World War I, during the Vietnam era, all of a sudden we think Jesus Christ is coming back now. And listen to me, he could. But if anybody comes to you saying they know when Jesus Christ is going to return like a guy did back in 2011, the answer is, you don't have a clue what you're talking about, but I'm not gonna answer this question because we're gonna actually answer it. You're gonna have to come back next week. I'm dead serious, by the way. So there are answers to the question of when, and I'm gonna try to get after it. You're gonna see a few more come to the surface today. But what's so cool about this journey, and this is what I mean by adding hope to it, listen to me. Our God sustained the past. He is in our present. And God, when the future comes, he will be there just as much. You can have hope as much in your past and your present as you do your future. And Paul is just throwing on the logs of hope to help us to understand why we don't have to grieve for those who, have dead, who are dead that are in Christ. But it brings us to the next question, I think, in there then. Well, how is this going to take place? How is God going to actually do all of this? Well, one of the things that you're going to see in here is he's going to do all of it through the person of Jesus Christ. As I said a moment ago, every facet of the work of God has been, is, and will flow through King Jesus. The work that, that, that is intended to put Jesus on, on display, at the end of the day, it will happen. And when you look down in this, the common thread in 14, 15, 16, and 17 is the Lord Jesus Christ. This means how is not in first, first and foremost an event or a process, but how is a person. We don't fall in love with an eschatological position. We don't fall in love with last kings, last things ideas. We fall in love with the one who is in control of all of it. How this happens is the person of Jesus Christ first and foremost. It's intended, like I said, to put Jesus on display. Now that's the broad and kind of easy answer to the question, but Paul's gonna also be, when you look down in this text, he's gonna be a little bit more specific. But to get what Paul was trying to tell them concerning how the dead in Christ are included in the, the return of Jesus, we need some, some more information. Now look down in your Bibles at verse 15, because Christian showed us last week that there was old information and also new information. He was, he was bringing to us, and in verse 15, he called this a word from the Lord. He's bringing us this information as an apostle to help us understand what's going on. Now, when that kind of language is used, that means it may be new information that is, he's just been revealed to him. So he comes to it in this way, or it might be old information that Paul grabs from the Old Testament or maybe the teachings of Jesus to help us to begin to understand what it is that's going on in the world in which we're a part of. In Paul's case, what he's doing here is he's grabbing a little bit from the Old Testament, a little bit from the teachings of Jesus. And as an apostle then, he is also adding revelation for us to understand what does it look like when Jesus Christ comes back. Now this passage that goes all the way to chapter five, verses 11, these, these scriptures that we're looking at and what we're gonna explore over the next couple of weeks was these passages were greatly influenced by Jesus in what Matthew 24, and it was called the Olivet Discourse. It was one of the last sermons that he preached about what things were gonna be like when, when he returned. 
Not only did he grab from Matthew 24, but he also grabbed from Matthew or Daniel 7 and Daniel 12 to kind of help them understand a little bit more of what it is. But he puts all these two together, and I don't have time to unpack all of it, but in Matthew 24, he uses this Greek word for coming called parousia. Now you'll find it also, and see that little word down in verse 15, the coming? That word, the coming, literally what it means is this Greek word, parousia. And he was talking about this more of a, an event that was about ready to take place. It's not just a word, it was an event. But what does that mean? Well, the image of parousia, and this is where we gotta kinda go down history. So you're gonna, last, week, last time I preached, we went down and we geeked out in Greek. And this week we're gonna geek out in history for just a little bit. So go geek out with me for just a second. But what Perusia was, was when a king would go into a town to make a royal visit, as he was coming in for it, it was called the Perusia. What he would do is, is he would come in with his whole entourage and like Thessalonica, you had different guys like Pompey and Octavian. They would tell stories about it. But as they would come into the town, they would then stand at the outside of the gates in order to come into the city. And there would be a trumpet that would blow, which we see down in verse 16. There would be a herald that would announce that it was coming in. And if you've ever seen the, uh, the movie Aladdin before, when he is King Ali, glorious he, Ali above, well, right? And they just come in then once that gets announced and they would then announce the king has arrived. I know my singing's great. <laughs> Surprised Billy doesn't have me lead more. But it would be a celebration that would be full of pomp. It would be full of stunning celebrations. There would be amazing banquets. There would be speeches that praised the imperial visitor. There would be visits to the local temple for sacrifices. There would be rich donations. There would be the celebration of games. There would be the dedication of statues or maybe even the construction of arches. They even would at this time mint coins where they would impress something down upon gold to celebrate this great leader that just visited their town. But the key of the visit was is that it was a dawning of a new era. Something was about ready to change. When Pompey came into Thessalonica or Octavian came into Thessalonica, it was announcing to the world that the things were about ready to change and the reason that they were about ready to change is this great ruler that was now coming into our city. Now, what would also happen was that this coming, the parousia, as these trumpets were blasted and the people were woken up, is the expectation is, is when the announcement came, key people within the city then would leave the city gates and they would go out to that great ruler. And as they got to that great ruler, they would come in and it was called the meat. Now, you'll kind of see this. I don't mean meat like meat in that way, but I'm talking about to meet, like in, we're, we're going to come out and meet you. That word, it's up on tasis. It's, it's this idea that it's going out as a, a committee of sorts and you're gonna then escort the royal person of the dignitary back into town for his official visit. And the parousia was not complete until the people came in back to town with the great ruler. Now listen to me. His audience may have missed all the different Old Testament allusions, might even miss some of the allusions of Christ's teaching but they would have known exactly what this meant. 
They would have known that when he used that word parousia, a great king was coming and a king was gonna come and there was gonna be a royal announcement. And in that royal announcement, all the faithful people were then to go out and meet that king, come back with the king to the city so that the king now might reign and rule over all things. And this is one of the things that we have to do historically to begin to understand this text that we're in here. Now, if you've got your Bibles, you can open up and look at, I mean, look at verse 14, 15, 16, and 17. Just go down there, and I'm just going to highlight a few things for you. If you look down at verse 15, it talks about the coming of the Lord. There's the word parousia. When you look down in verse 16, it has a shout. It's got a, a voice of an archangel. It's got trumpets. There's the royal announcement. In verse 17, then, we get to this idea where they meet. There's the apontesis. There's the way in which they go meet them to come back with him. But the imagery of Christ's second coming, and this is so important, is parousia, is how it's gonna happen in regarding to Christ himself, is he is going to ascend, descend as the ruler that he is. And let me just say this. Jesus Christ came the first time to the backwoods of the Roman Empire, into the far end of Judea, into the farthest end of even possibly you could get within Judea as a little baby within a common family. When Jesus returns the second time, he is not coming in that way. He is coming as the king and a new era will be established where he will reign and rule over all things. And so if you're a follower of Jesus in here, you can have hope because the king is returning to reign and rule and you are in his entourage. If you are not a follower of King Jesus, the other reality is when the king returned to the city, those that were against him, they would be judged and held accountable. Things were never gonna be the same after this. King Jesus is coming back. Now it's not only that, but we see even some ways in which in Daniel 7.13, this scenario kind of plays its way out. Like look it down at verse 13, it says in there, and you can look up on the screen. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came like a son of man. Here it is where he's referencing the coming of King Jesus. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. You kind of see allusions to that in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. And to him now, look at this, was given dominion and glory and, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In other words, what he had in mind is things were never going to be the same after the king was finally coronated for who he truly was and he came to rule. Another way that Paul puts it in 2 Thessalonians 1.7, which we'll come to next time, but I just want to dip into it a little bit, is when he was trying to explain parousia, he chose a different word. And this, this other word is where we get our word apocalypse from, which is that word is revealed from heaven. When King Jesus comes back, this is what I mean, the dawning of a new era, he won't just be anybody, he will be the unveiling of the great one, the one who is King of Kings and he's Lord of Lords. It's not talking about apocalypse like chaos. It was talking apocalypse from the standpoint that King Jesus will write and reign and rule over all things. Now, here's the other part. When I look at this text, I don't see some secret event. Now, other people might have a different view. They might say there's a secret event that happens first in which we're caught up and then we're brought back down. Now, again, you can hold that view. But when I look at this particular outcome of this event, it does not seem quiet. 
It seems loud. It seems explosive. It seems, I am coming back. It's similar to Matthew 24, 27, in which lightning that flashes across the entire sky, you can't miss it. The king is returning. Now, again, if you have a different view of this, that's okay. I'm usually right, but you know. (laughs) But the whole purpose of this, listen, Paul wanted to know that the king is coming back so that they could have hope. See, we sit in this world that feels like it's falling apart and we wonder how in the world is it ever gonna be righted? And he was saying to them, there is coming a time finally when this is going to happen. Our king will reign and rule. Now there's three other events I wanna show you here and then we'll kind of speed it up and get it done. But look, here's the other three events. Look down at verse 16. The three events that come after this is first, and you can see this down in verse 16. First, the dead in Christ will rise. Paul used the exact same word for the one that that Jesus was raised from the dead prior to 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 his second return. But now in this particular case now, God's people that are dead, they will be raised in the same way that King Jesus was raised. Now there's three passages of scripture I think that go with this. One is in Daniel 12, two. He's referencing back to this idea that many of those who sleep in the dust of earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame. Now, Daniel kind of includes the the same, Paul's same understanding of those who have no hope, but Daniel calls those who will awake, they will awake to shame and everlasting contempt, not a good direction. And I don't have time to explore it this moment, but I want you to see this. God's people shall awake to everlasting life. Those asleep that Paul is referencing in this particular context of, of, of what Paul's wrestling through, this is what's going on. The other text that we need to look at is in John 5, 28 through 29. Christian referenced it last week, but you can see this. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear, look at this, his voice and come out and those who have done good to resurrection of life and those who have done evil to resurrection of judgment. Again, I don't have time to go into it this time. We're gonna go into it later time. But his whole point was, is when he screams and yells this shout of command over the world, it will cause the dead in Christ to wake up. Talk about a great alarm clock. I need it for my son. <laughs> the last passage to explore kind of in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, or the other noise that we hear, is in verse 51, he says this, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. In other words, we need a shout and we need a trumpet. And in that moment, his whole idea is, is those that are dead will be raised to resurrected life. Sometimes we tell people, you know, you're not gonna worry about who it is that's died. You're only gonna care about Jesus then why does Paul spend so much time telling us what's gonna happen to our loved ones at the end? Why hope? He wants us to have hope. But these loud noises are not just for the dead. If you look down in 1 Corinthians 15, it's also, when you, when you kind of unpack it a little bit, it's for those who are not asleep. We shall not all sleep, but the idea is not only will the dead in Christ be raised to resurrected life, those of us that are alive will be raised to resurrected life. And this is what the new era means. Everything is going to be changed. Again, more logs that he's just thrown on the fire to give us hope. Now back to verse 17. 
The followers of Jesus Christ are alive when he comes back. Now here's the other one, we'll be caught up together with Christ. The word caught up probably isn't a good enough translation. It means to suddenly and forcibly be snatched away. The idea is of just the irresistible power of God, all of his work and power, revealing of King Jesus coming to bear in which now the dead in Christ and those that are in Christ that are alive are going to be with him. And the idea that he uses in here is in the air. He talks about this idea also of being in the clouds. The idea is we'll see one another again. You guys know this, two years ago, I lost my dad and I remember sitting across from somebody and they were talking about just the, the, you know, how sad they were because they would never see him again. My dad knew King Jesus. And somewhere in there, as we're going back to King Jesus, as he's calling us back up, we will not only see him, but we'll see all around us who have known King Jesus that love him. And it will be one amazing family reunion. I know we always want to keep our eyes on Jesus, but for some reason, Paul wants us to know it's not just that. It's all these different ones that we know. And being caught up to the cloud, it's probably not just a a cloud like we see a fluffy cloud in the air, but more likely when you look at like Matthew 24 or, or even when you get into different places within Daniel 7, It's the clouds of heaven. It's the story of when the cloud would show up, man, the cloud wasn't just any cloud. It was the cloud that went with Israel all throughout the Exodus in Egypt. It was the cloud that enveloped the temple. It was the cloud that said, our God is present and he's here. He's with us. When we see that cloud of heaven, and again, you can have a different view if you don't want to be right like me. I'm kidding. But when we see that cloud, it's gonna tell us stories that our God has arrived to be with us. But the climax of verse 17, when you get there, it is something completely different. At the very end of it, he has this simple little statement that he throws in there, we will be with the Lord Always. Where? People always ask me, where's this gonna be? Well, new creation's gonna be here on earth, but where, where, where? The real question is not where, the real question is who. We will finally be with God. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, you don't realize this, but every longing that you have within you that you think is moving towards other things is actually a longing to know the God of the universe rightly. And when finally Jesus Christ returns in this moment in which he comes down, not only will we see the world now with perfected eyes, not only will we understand what it is that life's about, but finally in this particular time, the promise of the angels when they came at Christ and they said, peace on earth, goodwill to men will finally happen. The prayer of Jesus, the Lord's prayer, when he said, oh, Father, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we see King Jesus that day, Finally, we will realize that all is meant to be set right. No more wars, no more famines, no more deaths. In this moment when it's talking about going to the clouds, the clouds aren't just these vapor things in the, in the sky. They're an announcement that all will be made right. And the climax of verse seven, 17 is we will be with him. When we ask the question, where? Sure, there's an aspect in which it'll be in the air, in the clouds. 
But I think more importantly, that little word that's in there, that we will be with him, is key to this. Now look at Revelation 21, and I'm gonna kind of hurry through this just a little bit. He said, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is John speaking about what's to come at the end. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for former things have passed away. Where are we going? We're going to a place in which finally all of the sin that has been accumulated over time, the grass of God has been poured out Finally, we're gonna live in that place in which Jesus Christ has judged all things. Finally, we'll be in a place that won't be impermanent like what Adam and Eve had in the garden. It will be the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. It'll be more personal than Moses experienced on Sinai. It will be safer than what the high priest experienced when he, when he went into the Holy of Holies. It'll be more intimate than David experienced as the friend of God. It'll be more mind-bending than what happened when Peter, James, and John were with Jesus in the transfiguration. It will be more awesome than this moment when John is hanging out with them. The longing of every heart who's ever wanted to be in the presence of Jesus, where will we be? We will be with him there. We'll be with him. And why? Because God wanted us to be with him. I think we forget that. I think sometimes we think, well, God, no, he wants to save me, which he does. God doesn't want me to go to hell, which he, he doesn't. God wants me for this and wants me for that. No, at the end of the day, what is happening inside of this is the answer to why is why has God done all that he has? It's because this is, was his intent from the very beginning with humanity. We were created by God to glorify him, to reflect his glory, to be image bearers. And we do this best by enjoying him with him forever. The way that we're living right now is not how God destined that we would be. This is merely a time in which we are waiting and longing. In fact, all of creation's Romans 8 is longing for this day in which finally humanity will be with God as we were created to be. Our hope is not in some disembodied state where we're sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Our hope is not in any kind of a way that we're supposed to just show up and avoid hell when he initiated all of creation, he initiated so that we would be with him. We were designed to be with him. We were designed to be near him, to love him. And that is our realized hope. That's why he says, at the end of it all, the great longing is that we would be with him. Now what, what are we supposed to do? Well, I hope I've answered every question Christian told me that I should answer. But let me get to the what. Paul never gave a command unless he was first gonna give us all the reasons why we should do what we do. In this particular command, it's followed by everything that has to do with one day, what it will look like to finally be where we were intended to go. And he says, therefore, in light of that, and his assumption is that you believe that, well then encourage one another with these words. 
encourage one another to actually believe that this is absolutely true. This is not a figment of our imagination. This is not a nice little hope and a wish that somehow at the end of it, we hope King Jesus will return. Because King Jesus died and rose again, I can guarantee you he is coming back one day. Remember I said there's some things that we can argue about. There are some things that we can't. You cannot argue with the fact that our King Jesus is coming back one day. And now what we need to do is live like it. Well, what does it mean to live like it? That means then to fuel this, allow this to come alongside of one another and fuel our hope. Man, when we're struggling and straining, fuel that hope. Fuel a hope that then hope, then we learn in chapters two and three of Thessalonians, it fuels boldness. Be bold in this world. Again, not arrogant and not bombastic and not in any kind of a way just having machissimo, but a boldness that says my king is returning and therefore I'm gonna do what Paul called me to do. I'm gonna live holy lives in front of the other people because God, the one who's coming back for me one day, called me to be holy. I'm gonna love people extravagantly. I'm gonna love God. I'm gonna love my, my, the people within my local church. I'm gonna love my neighbors. But even this, let me just say this. At this time, what the world needs more than anything is not a church just loving one another or loving God. We are also called to love our enemies. He says, in light of that, because this is true, don't just love the people that are easy. Go extravagant and love the people that are even hard to love. But I think the last thing just to include in there is therefore then hope. 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 When we feel like the world is careening downward, hope. When we're not sure what's going over on in Europe, hope. When we're wondering who's in charge in our government, what system's in place and all these things going on, hope. When our marriages are struggling, hope. When our kids, we're not sure what's gonna happen to them, hope. When we're wondering how we're gonna make ends meet because gas now costs more, I'm gonna have to sell a child to be able to pay for it. (laughs) It's okay, I've got four, hope. And no matter what God calls you to go through this week, today, this year, hope. And so Cornerstone, in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, go as ones who know that King Jesus is returning one day. He will raise the dead in Christ. They will receive new bodies. Those that are alive when he returns will also be resurrected to new life. Those that aren't in Christ, they will experience judgment as God writes the world and makes it as it's supposed to be and then comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth forever that we might live as God intended. That is our hope in the future, cornerstone. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, hope. Amen.